This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Thank you. Um, I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. I want to thank the conference organisers. It's a huge endeavour to pull something like this together, so congratulations. And I want to invite your suggestions on this paper in the Q&A. It's its first outing. So I stand between you and lunch, so let me start with a story. Let's picture the second-hand record store. Crates, dust, vinyl, music posters, music playing. Maybe there's a general studied silence, people cruising the shelves, cruising each other. Someone, generally a bloke, is behind the counter and he's doing something important or looking bored. Maybe he's helpful and you end up talking for 20 minutes about that record that's hard to find. Or maybe he doesn't like the record you pick and so it's all a kind of dishevelled arch aloofness. This is a familiar scene and a romantic one. An image of the second-hand record store as the place where we might find ourselves and others like us. Famously, to the point of parody, second-hand record stores have historically provided a portal to an otherwise hard-to-access musical past, and along with it, the opportunity to curate your own cultural credentials through the choices you make therein. The romance of the record store lies, no doubt, in the way in which it has historically provided a material location for people to actively assemble their sense of their own tailored cultural space, a space which is stepped out according to the particular routes one cuts through the store and its holdings based on taste and desire and the limits of the store's stock and the money in your pocket. Of course, buying second-hand records isn't what it used to be. The revival of vinyl consumption over the past few years in the context of the electronic distribution of music, which has dramatically reshaped the cultural and social role of the record store, has contributed to a revitalised commodification of the cultural experience of second-hand record collecting. Expensive vinyl reissues, online auctions for rare pressings, record stores that are fitted out with their own fashionable cafes, the absorption of records and record paraphernalia within the highbrow market of art galleries and museums, thank you, ACME, and the marketing of record store merchandise by famous record stores that have effectively become brands themselves, all illustrate how buying new and used records has changed markedly since vinyl first went on public sale. Incorporated now within a widening capitalist hipster economy, contemporary cultures of second-hand record collecting, which value rarity and sponsor the cashed-up collector, are set against the recent past of the 1980s and the 1990s when vinyl was willfully abandoned by many for the affordances offered by the new media of the compact disc, etc. Where buying second-hand records might once have been the thrifty option, often it is now pitched to consumers at the other end of the market. So we could talk more about the details of these transitions, including the way in which nostalgia is working all over the place here both in terms of how the resurgence in vinyl consumption can be read as an effective commodification of nostalgia for the past that the records, whether second-hand or reissued, materialise, as well as in terms of my nostalgia for a time when second-hand records were, well, cheaper. 
But the reason why I have drawn our attention to the shifting social and economic conditions of buying and selling vinyl is because it tells us that used record collecting is not a static set of cultural practices with a self-evident set of cultural meanings. Conventional accounts might suggest to us that people buy used records simply because they like the music or because they want to invest in an asset that will increase in value over time, whether that is cashed out in terms of monetary return or accumulated in terms of acquired cultural capital. I would suggest, though, that neither of these accounts sufficiently explains the particular significance of vinyl records in queer culture. We can find examples of this significance in at least three key data sources, oral history, fictional biography, such as film, and conducted and imagined ethnographies, by which I mean to refer to lived knowledges, things we know and infer based on the lives we live and the lives we observe. And I think we've seen examples of these different types of data sources through contributions to the conference so far. An example of oral history uh, is Tom Robinson's oral history of recollections, which I've written about elsewhere, where Tom Robinson talks about the deep impact of discovering Hunky Dory as a young person and how that record went on to shape the Tom Robinson band's pioneering contribution to the gay music scene of the 1970s. And many of you will be familiar with the band's signature anthem, Glad to be Gay. We can find another vivid illustration of the potent relationship between Bowie Records and queer youth life in Todd Haynes' David Bowie fantasy film, Velvet Goldmine. In this film, Brian Slade, played by Jonathan Rhys-Myers, stands in as Bowie's proxy, and Haynes presents us with a relationship between an adolescent Arthur Stewart, played by Christian Bale, and the proxy Bowie record, which goes beyond Stewart simply liking the music, offering instead a depiction of some of the intensities driving historical queer fandom. The link between the record and Stuart's teenage queer desire is made explicit across a set of scenes that bridge together two key moments in the film. In the first scene, Stuart is, seen, Stuart is shown embarrassedly buying a copy of Brian Slade's The Ballad of Maxwell Demon, a proxy Bowie album replete with an explicit homoerotic cover which clearly references the covers of Diamond Dogs, the dress cover of The Man Who Sold the World, and the interior fold-out image of Aladdin Sane. Maybe we could have called this the Diamond Dogs panel. Later in the second key moment, the record is referenced again when Stuart is caught by his parents masturbating in his bedroom to the queer prospects visually and orally fostered by the proxy Bowie. The film tells us that Stuart's relationship to the record and the erotic promise of the proxy Bowie that it brings into his bedroom is homosexual because of the way in which humiliation frames its recognition. The boys in the record store mock Stuart, calling the Bowie proxy a pansy rocker and a fucking poof. And his father, having walked in on his son, yells at him for bringing shame to this house by doing such filthy things, leaving his son hunched over, shaking and weeping, thoroughly disgraced. That these scenes are presented to the viewer as retrospective glances by Stuart as a now more solidly and self-assuredly queer adult encourages us to situate the value of that record within a cultural economy of queer youth life. It lit a spark, nurtured a desire, and contributed in some patchwork way to giving some form to those dissident, gendered, and erotic prospects in life which Stuart might yet have desired, but not so far had such a clear vision of. Across the film, 
The adult Stuart pursues the Bowie proxy, the sponsor of his adolescent queer desire, and the queerness of his teenage reception of the record is presented causally as a seed that grows into the queer things that Stuart grows up to do. Like Oscar Wilde's brooch that a queer child, Jack Ferry, finds in the opening sequence of the film, a sequence which links queer children a century apart by the possession of the object, the recorder's object is depicted as holding some kind of magical power a power to foster within the queer youth the capacity to more vividly imagine a queer future by offering that young person tangible, explicit sounds and images which give audible and visual form to otherwise amorphous queer feelings. As Stuart exclaims when the Bowie proxy appears on the television screen in, um, in, a, in a, a, a shot that repeats some of the um, televised uh, uh, images we've seen in presentations early today, Stuart exclaims, that's me, that, that, that is me. Indeed, the ways in which both the record cover and the television screen invoke the idea of the framed portrait, the mirror and the window, perhaps helps us to understand how Stuart's reading of the proxy Bowie on vinyl covers and on the television screen can inspire such simultaneous identification and projected visioning. As a film based on the substitution of Slade for Bowie and Stuart as a double for queers everywhere, Velvet Goldmine is a film of magical transferals, and one which suggests that precious properties reside in the proxy Bowie record, the discovery of which is depicted as a revelation for the young Stuart. Finally, he's able to see his own queer self by seeing the queerness in the Bowie proxy. Through this process of transferred identification, the Bowie proxy reveals the queer youth to himself with sounds and visions that, naturally enough, Stuart takes on then as his own. While insights regarding these practices of identification, celebrity emulation and identity confirmation have long been a feature of fandom and celebrity studies, what I want to focus on is how we might think about records as objects fitting into all of this. If Velvet Goldmine is a film about magic transferals, it is also surely one about fantasy origins, opening as it does with its queer sci-fi mashup of the Oscar Wilde and Moses nativity stories, inviting us to think about how queerness is transferred across the generations, as it shows us Jack Ferry picking Wilde's identifying brooch out of the dirt a century or so after Wilde's time. Insofar as the record functions, Within a technology of queer recognition for Stuart, the film draws parallels between Wilde's brooch and the proxy Bowie record. They are both presented as material objects in which a kind of transgenerational queerness inheres, and where the discovery and possession of the object works to confirm the recognition of the subject as a queer one to themselves and to us as we look on. I would suggest that we are familiar with thinking in more or less formal ways of Bowie records as queer objects, whether that is through queer readings of the sleeve photography, song lyrics, sexual and gendered persona, and so forth. And again, we've seen discussions uh, in that regard. Todd Haynes' provocative presentation of this enduring significance of Bowie records to queer life and the capacity of queer objects to transfer queerness through the transfer of the object invites us to critically reflect on the ways in which Bowie re records circulate and to what extent we can think about the effects of such in terms of queer reproduction. And by queer reproduction, I'm drawing on the work of people such as Guy Ockingham, uh, Liz Gross, Eve Sedgwick, Jack Harbostom, and Catherine von Stockton, and I can talk more about those people and questions if you like. So while records circulate in many ways, the notion of the second-hand record binds our understanding of the object to a particular set of practices of exchange. 
if we can, if we can regard a record like Hunky Dory as a queer object from the moment of its public reception in the early 70s through queer readings of its signs, values and qualities, then finding an old copy of that LP just down the road in 2015 in a record store invites us to think about this record as an object of exchange in an economy of transferring used records and the relationship between such practices of exchange and the queerness of the object. Is there something queer about second-hand exchange? If a Bowie record holds particular significance as a queer object for Tom Robinson or Todd Haynes' Stewart in the 1970s, then does it make sense to think of the circulation of records like Hunky Dory in a used records economy as practices of handing around or handing down through time textual sites for the recognition of queerness? And if this contention holds, then can we say that the second-hand circulation of Bowie records compounds or multiplies the queerness that is already associated with the album by merit of its lyrics, image, musicality, celebrity, and so on? And if we are prepared to read second-hand record exchange as a technology of queer multiplication, then I think we can develop a more detailed understanding of how queer reproduction works through the shared distribution of Bowie records by briefly discussing two features of buying second-hand records. So the first feature characterising second-hand records is prior ownership. Each used record has a previous user. Thus, the second-hand record inevitably becomes a sign of a particular social history of use. And this history often vividly marks albums through creases, stains, damage, additions and annotations. Through its second-hand character, a used vinyl copy of Hunky Dory invokes for its new owner a cross-generational history of fans of the queer object that simply did not exist for those people buying the record new and experiencing it firsthand when it was first released. Thus, the used record builds a sense of queer life by retrospectively providing the second-hand buyer with a sense of history. We see this especially when records are marked with people names or when they've marked little uh, notes next to the songs that they really like to play the most. This retrospective installation of a queer history works like reproduction in reverse, giving the second-hand user already in existence a sense of the first-hand owner of the record and all of the imagined hands on the record in between. Where these predecessors appear not as ancestors in a hereditary line of trans-historical homosexuality, but as guarantors of the prospects of living a life structured in part by queer tastes and attachments. Thus, the imagined queer social history which the used record materialises might be seen as securing the possibility of future queer life. Through participation in this economy of exchange, the used record collector enters into this imagined queer social history. Is it too much to suggest that through possession of the record, the record collector imagines themselves into a social space with the shadows of all those other users across time and place? And if these records materialise queer ghosts, might that be one explanation for the ways in which records keep us company? And if they help make queer life more imaginable, not only through their textual queerness, but through the ways in which their histories of exchange suggest the prospects of living in a world where others might share our queer affinities, do the records themselves, demanding as they do so much physical space in people's private spaces, come to stand in as proxies for all those lost queer users the second-hand user cannot know? As the singer sings, sometimes it gets so lonely. If buying used records can be understood as an active process of situating the self within an imagined nest of social relations, then these relationships are also structured by the economic terms under which the queer object is exchanged. While there is a thriving market in expensive used records, the second feature of second-hand record distribution that I want to note before I close is the significance of the remaindered record. 
An inspiration for this paper was my curiosity at finding a copy of Aladdin's saying in a second-hand record store with its corner cut off. It turns out that albums have been historically marked and defaced not only by previous users, but also by stores who had cut into album covers to mark remaindered stock. This could be done by cutting off the corner of the album, slicing into the album sleeve, or puncturing a hole through it. Described as cutouts, these markings reference slow or failed circulations of the product within the capitalist economy of consumption and circulation at the time of its original release. As the remaindered, these records are not just circulating via the queer modality of the second hand, but also through the modality of the discount sale, a modality which we might also retrieve as queer insofar as it materialises a failure or frustration of its maximal incorporation within a capitalist economy of exchange. Insofar as cutouts materially mark records as a remainder or surplus stock, they allegorise queer life. As referencing that which is left over, historical homosexuality is perhaps a classic illustration of remaindered life, an illustration brought to life by vernacular historical descriptions of lesbians as having been left on the shelf and gay men as being such a waste. Second-hand record exchange, of course, is at its base a process of adding value insofar as the object continues to attract monetary expenditure and cultural interest. And we can see this in the way in which that damaged, remaindered second-hand copy of Aladdin's saying continues to float between an unfinished sequence of second hands. Marked by queer social histories of prior users and the queer economic histories of allocating value to previously devalued stock, the second-hand Bowie record provides a material site for inheriting a historical sense of queer attachments to objects and fostering an imagination of a queer social life. Thanks. You have been listening to an ACME podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the ACME website. <laughs>